0: You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast Deer Season Special. These bonus episodes revolve around deer hunting stories and experiences from a host of deer hunters. These whitetail hunting BS sessions will be launched every week during the 2023 hunting season, adding fuel to your fire in the deer woods. Be entertained and hopefully learn something along the way. The title sponsor of the Deer Season Special Series is Vantage Point Archery, home to the toughest machined one-piece broadheads made in the USA. VPA products are built to last, which is why they have a lifetime warranty. And if you're not completely satisfied, you can send it back, which I highly doubt will occur. New to the lineup this year is VPA's Omega Broadhead. It combines the features of a single bevel with strength of a double bevel. This broadhead also comes with lay-flat sharpening technology. You heard right. A single bevel broadhead you can lay flat and sharpen without a jig. You can find the Omega and all the other broadheads at vparchery.com. The Pennsylvania Woodsman is also brought to you by Radix Hunting, home of the M-Core cell camera, stick and pick camera accessories, and much more. Also brought to you by Vitalize Seed, a one-two planting system designed with diversity and biology in mind, making it the best food plot available. And lastly, by Huntworth Gear, quality hunting clothing at an affordable cost, makers of heat boost technology. This week's guest is Pennsylvania native and podcast host Clint Campbell from the Truth from the Stand deer hunting podcast. After a couple technical difficulties, Clint and I had a smooth sailing conversation discussing all things around hunting philosophy in Pennsylvania. We talk about the challenges he's overcome over the years, hunting in a state with high pressure. We talk about the lessons learned of many bucks recently that he unfortunately did not kill but taught him lessons in order to proceed for the future and they seem to have paid dividends as clint has already filled his tag out for pennsylvania this year on a great buck we talk about hunting kansas and we talk about a couple other philosophical questions such as who are the people that have had the biggest impact in your hunting from the podcasting standpoint great conversation with a great guy who's well thought out and well spoken hope you enjoy this episode Joining me today on the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast, I've got uh, fellow podcast hosts, uh, Truth from the Stand, Mr. Clint Campbell. How you doing, Clint?
1: Good, man. What's going on? Appreciate you having me on, buddy.
0: What's going on? Uh, I've, I've been jam-packing all of my season preparations into, like, weekends. Like, I've, I've been, I, I feel like I'm cursing and I'm beating a dead horse because I've said it so many times, but between house projects and family and stuff, like, I've just pushed it off, pushed it off, and... I feel like I'm studying for an exam for college. I wait till the last minute and I'm just going to cram it all in and right at the last second before go time here.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, I can commiserate with you there. And what I've finally done is I've just kind of thrown in the towel as far as like on preparation and just realize I'm as prepared as I'm going to be. And we're just going to have to let her rip this season. And that's just going to be what it is. <laughs> Cause I've kind of had a, you know, it's been a, I guess it started probably like in, March like like just had like a bunch of family stuff that came up like in the spring whenever I like to do all my scouting and stuff like that you know late winter early spring and then had some shit weather that just didn't cooperate with me on the weekends that I had free time to get out and stuff like that um and then we got into the summer and vacations and stuff like that I mean I got all my cameras out and I scouted you know the I'll say what you know I will call the minimal viable product of scouting like the baseline of what I would want to do in a season Mm -hmm. like that's all I got done this year You know, which was basically just making it back to a lot of places I've either hunted in the past, maybe I didn't hunt last year, but I've hunted, you know, in the past several years and just kind of pulled cameras from those general areas, scouted those general areas to see where the sign was laid down, what sign was in the area, looked for some sheds in those areas. Um, and that was about it. And then got my cameras back out, you know, and that was, uh, and that was essentially it. So I feel like I'm behind like this whole, this whole year. And then I just finally at one point got good with it and was like, you know what? It is what it is. Um means we're just probably gonna have to have a little bit more boots on the ground and just be more precise about things, um, whenever the when the season actually gets here. So that's my plan now.
0: Yeah, I when I was uh I was thinking back to my seasons, I went on a I went on a like a four year streak where I shot a, a pretty good buck every season and then twenty one uh twenty twenty one I I didn't kill a buck. I should have killed a buck I messed up on. But uh, like I was thinking about that, like I just put, I just couldn't get over how much pressure I put on myself to try to fill a tag, mm-hmm. and then uh, going into the following season, I kept that pressure on me so hard. And when I finally killed a deer, I, it was at some point I was like, "It's really not as big of a deal as I make it out to be." And I don't know what, what comes of me in putting that pressure. But speaking of pressure, filling a tag, I, I put the same pressure on me to get prepared to try to fill a tag and it's right. uh it's a hard balance i mean how have you dealt with that over the years
1: man i mean it used to eat me up to be honest with you um you know and then you know it, it made it a little easier when you know i, I realized that uh, no one gives a shit but me right <laughs> essentially right and or like you know maybe one or two buddies are gonna ever are, are going to remember um and you know even though I run a podcast, a hunting podcast and stuff like that, it's like, I'm still a working guy. Like it's not like I do that for a living and that's all I do, you know? And so you know, I still have to kind of work around a work sch- schedule and I have some flexibility, which I'm fortunate with that, but still doesn't mean I get out all the time when there's a good weather day or whatever, you know, on like a Wednesday, whenever there's a 15 degree temperature drop and I got a North wind and I want to go hunting. It's like, if I have stuff to do at work, it's like, I just can't get out. You know, it is what, what it is. Um, and, I travel every year somewhere, you know? And so for me to try to, to get something done, just at least in Pennsylvania specifically, I really got like four weeks to get it done. And if you think about it in terms of like, I don't usually take, but maybe one or two like personal days during the, during the year, you know, I'm relegated to weekends. And so we can't on Sunday. So I got those four Saturdays, uh, plus I'll take like two days off. And so you're talking about like six days and maybe I'll sneak in like a morning or you know, one or two mornings or one or two evenings throughout the course of the year um, of of October. You know, if I get in before work and just hunt a morning or I'll get out a little bit early from work and hunt an evening. All
0: right. Picking up back where we left off here, we had some connection issues. Uh, We were kind of talking about the transition with with balancing work schedule and stuff. I mean, it's stressful. I go through it every single year. I put too much stress on myself. And uh, you said it perfectly in the beginning, like, nobody cares other than me. I mean, I could have a wall full of boners and at the end of the day, nobody's going to care other than me.
1: You know, what I was saying was I really, I don't want to say pressure, but like, I probably focus more on, um, the out of state hunts more than anything. I mean, that's probably where I feel the most that tag costs money. And, you know, if I'm going to Kansas or Iowa or wherever, you know, it's, it was a long drive from Eastern PA, you know? And so that's probably where I get, Uh, I won't say frustrated, but where, you know, I don't even want to say pressure because it's not the right word, but like I feel the, this uh, overwhelming drive to like uh, uncover every stone, you know, and there's also an element of excitement because I'm not familiar with those areas. And so I always just, you know, I always joke with my buddy, Tony Peterson. I'm a much better out of state hunter than I am an in-state hunter. And I think part of that is, is because I go in with a lot less information and I'm just hunting on the fly. You know reading sign and i'm also focused on it because i'm hunting every day like i'm there to hunt because as much as i try to you know uh, compartmentalize things when you're home and stuff like that like there's still like this part part of me whenever i'm out, out to hunt it's like man you know, it's I should be hanging out with the the kiddo or the or the wife tonight or, or mm-hmm. whatever the case is or there's you know chores that you have that you should be doing instead of being out in the woods or whatever the case is and so it's hard for me to separate those things but whenever i get to travel and hunt um and i'm able to be focused it's like i'm just a different almost like a different hunter on those on those trips but um you know regardless we'll we'll make do and and try to figure out how to make make things happen locally i probably just need to it might be a blessing in disguise as you I didn't get to scout as much it's like i know a little less than i usually do and maybe uh Maybe stupidity is my uh, is my uh, is my superpower. <laughs> so,
0: are you like me in a sense, and you kind of suffer from an, uh, paralysis by analysis in a sense with uh, the information you collect via scouting and cameras?
1: Um, I wouldn't say pr- paralysis by analysis because I, I I've I mean used to for sure. Um, I think that I still like overthink some some areas as opposed to just follow my gut you know what i mean and it's like i can make a decision i usually make a decision pretty quickly um but i usually probably take the wrong intel if if that if that makes sense mm. um you know maybe i look for deeper meaning in something that really isn't isn't there where whenever i'm tra- on a travel hunt somewhere and i see deer do one do something twice i'm like well they're going to do that and then i just execute on what i just saw as opposed to you know some of the areas that i hunt in pa it's like You know, I'm like, well, I've hunted it often enough or I've scouted it often enough to where I've seen them do this. I've seen them do this, 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 this this on, you know, on these different winds or these different weather patterns or whatever the case is. And I try to like too finely thread the needle, so to speak. Right. Um, and then end up in a position where it's like, you know, the past two years are a great example. Um, an area that I was hunting and, um, two years in a row, I saw my target buck, uh, in the middle of October and, um, in both years, I never got an arrow off. And in both years, last year, the deer was within 40 yards and he bedded down in front of me at 40 yards. And I just watched him for like two hours and then watched him walk away. Mm. And then the year, in the year before, I had my target deer at 18 yards. Um, but he slipped in on me in a, in a direction I really didn't think he would, that he would come from. And by the time I realized that he was there, he was too, there wasn't enough breakup between he and I for me to get drawn. And if I didn't want to spook him, I had to just kind of sit and watch him. And then, but like, he never showed up again. Like you know, I never got him on camera. I never had a visual of him. Like it was that one shot, like one opportunity and then never again type of deal. Um, yeah. But even in so a situation just, like,
0: like that, Clint, it's already cut you off, but even a situation like that, yeah. it's still almost like a, a win because you were in twice and you saw a target deer both time. And that's, that's big.
1: Yeah. And it was actually the same day, both same exact date, both years and, you know, back to back years. I just like a little spot that I've kind of had figured out, um in terms of like dates and like primary scrape area, mm-hmm. uh, scrape dates and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like, I certainly kind of counted as a win because I, you know, I won the chess match to a degree, right. And it's all public lands, you know, and it's where I live, it's heavily pressured, you know, just cause I live in and around a larger Metro area. So, you know, any air, anywhere you hunt in this area, it's just going to, there's going to be people this mm. is all there is to it. And so even seeing a mature animal and both of those deer were, were, were four year olds. Um, You know, and so even seeing a mature animal getting that, you know, getting beating them at their own game, you know, not getting an arrow off is still somewhat a feather in your cap. But it's just it was frustrating both both occasions because I played all my cards right. And this year was doubly frustrating because in the back of my mind, and this is where it kind of goes in to what we were talking about, where there's another tree I thought I should have got into. Mm. But I was like, nah, I was like, man they'll pass through here because, you know, they're going to want to make their way to the scrape or whatever. Like I've seen so many deer do that right. In on camera or whatever. Right. And, um, and so I didn't listen to my own, like, you know, my gut was telling me to move 20 yards to this other tree. And had I moved 20 yards to another tree, like I would have shot that deer in, his, in the bed that he laid down in, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, it's just one of those things where, you know, my gut was telling me to move, but academically, everything that I had seen, you know, and stuff had told me that I was in the right spot, but you know, the gut, the gut won out on that one.
0: Yeah. I've been there before. You talked about, um, out of state huntings and the hunting and the focus you have, cause you, you go with less information, and you pounce. Um, I'm, I have a new property this year here in Pennsylvania. Uh, this is the, the second year I'm hunting it. Uh, and last year I didn't really even do anything with it until like two weeks before the season. I got permission. I did a quick speed tour and, uh, hunted it like twice, and uh, learned quickly that it was it's a it's a good property. But I spent some time here recently, kind of running. A, you know, I've been running a little bit more cameras and looking at it on boots on the ground, and looking at it, I keep overthinking everything because it's. I, I I have a spot picked out where it's like, this is where I need to be. I I see it pinched down the way I want it. I we've got plenty of daylight pictures of it. Um, it just seems like, in a sense, it's too good to be true, and I keep second-guessing myself, well, is this truly the spot that I, is this truly the tree I need to pick, or am I getting too aggressive, and I, I think my problem is, I always think of the season from a season-long perspective, like, you know, beginning October 1, all the way through late archery, you know, I'll hunt any day to try to fill my buck tag, mm-hmm. and I always do that second-guessing of, well, I don't want to go too early, because if I bust it out, I might ruin this, particular property or, or section for quite a long time. Whereas like a, a, a week long hunt, it's boom or bust kind of deal. And I think that's where I kind of get hung up. I, I, I don't know why I struggle having that confidence to just go with my gut. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And then you hit the nail on the head because what, what you were kind of talking about, like, that's what I've kind of decided this year. And, you know, and again, maybe it's a blessing that I didn't get to do all the scouting that I usually like to do and have a little less information because you know I play that game like you were just saying where it's like you know I have like my prime spots that I know are historically going to be good at some point right and one of them I won't go into until the middle of October like it's just like it's been too good for too many years in a row um, in a general area around the same dates to where it's like it just unless I know for sure that there's a deer that's killable in there before that like I'm just not going to go in there and there was a deer. What was it? Three years ago, I think. Um, and he was he was a good deer. He was probably. I mean, he was a really good deer for Pennsylvania State He was probably close to 150 inches, and he was <clears> just really weird. Like he had, his rack had like. He almost had like a he almost had like a double he was had a double G three and a double G two on both sides, like not not a split, but like double like two antler two g2s coming off the main beam side by side and two g3s coming off the main beam side by side Mm. right and just a really cool weird looking funky deer and i knew where he was you know in general like i had some early season pictures of him and um there was a good acorn crop that year in this particular area and i went in and i checked the camera um like right before the season started, because my season starts September sixteenth, like special re- regulations unit. Yep. So I do get like you know two extra weeks or whatever. Um, and usually in the past, like I had a if I have a good deer early season around here because I get those extra two weeks, it's like I usually will get kind of aggressive. Uh, that's usually what I'll try to do, just because chances of them shifting and being gone anyway in like another week, you know, after the season opens, is pretty good, pretty high right mm. if he's still in an area from summer and i can get a get a crack at him if i blow him out of there chances are he was leaving in un, like another week anyway just like to shift like for the fall or whatever right and so that's usually what i try to do but it's not often i have a good deer like that time of year that like doesn't shift and is already out like and i'm re kind of like you know refining like what good bucks are going to be in the area now for the fall or whatever That's usually like what that part of the year ends up being but this particular year i had that really good deer and he was Consistent all, you know, all summer for the most part. And I went in and checked the camera right before the season opened. I want to say it opened that year on like, just say like the 15th or 16th. I don't remember exactly. And I went in and checked and it say it was like the 12th or something like that, that, you know, that I checked cameras or Mm. something like that. And he, uh, he had been daylight active like three days in a row with 15 minutes of daylight left. Or I'm sorry, like just 15 minutes into daylight, essentially or shooting light, um, like three days, three consecutive days in a row. Right. And so in my mind, I was like, man, I should be in there like the first day in the morning, which is sacrilegious. Right. And, you know, some people would say, you know, for early season to hunt a morning, but I'm like, man, he's going to be in here. He can't be bedded far from here. And I kind of had an idea where he was bedded and, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to let it cool off. I'm going to wait and see if I can't, you know, pick him up in like a slightly different area because the access in that area is tough. And so I basically tried to nip at him from around the edges of where I knew he was bedded, Mm -hmm. right? And what ended up happening was, was like, I never saw him on, on those edges. When I ended up checking that camera again, had I gone in there within the, I think it was the second day of the season, he daylighted again, like in the morning, like same time. Like, you know, whatever it was like 15 minutes after daylight and I should have been there and there and killed him, you know, that day. And then I ended up playing cat and mouse with that deer basically the rest of the season. And it was a day and a dollar short every time I would show up to a spot, I would hunt him. And then, you know, the camera that was in like a, a a draw that was a hundred yards away had him coming through there, looked like he was coming from where I was set up, you Mm. know, type, type of thing. And it happened like three different times. And I kicked myself after the season because, you know, I went in like postseason scouting and I found some of his rubs and stuff like that, that were in an area. And they weren't necessarily like rut rubs necessarily. Like they weren't like, they weren't a, um, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a rub line or anything like that. And it wasn't on like a scrape line. So it wasn't like he was just traveling, making rubs. It was like probably him peeling velvet was my guess. Right. Cause mm-hmm. it was just kind of a random, You know, a rando kind of one off, but he had a very distinct antler characteristic and I could tell it was his just by the way the, by the way the rub was, you know, what his antlers would do to a tree. Mm. And so I ended up kicking myself because that deer was super killable right at the beginning of the season, but I was afraid that I was going to blow him out and didn't go for broke on him, you know, and ended up spending an entire season, like after he started really moving you know, and checking scrapes and stuff like that. Cause my plan was like, well, if I am getting him early seasons, like there's a handful of like these primary scrapes in the area that I know of that I know are active, that are good. And that year there was, you know, uh, there were acorn drop like around all these primary scrapes. And so I was like, man, food, primary scrape, like I'll catch up to him. Like I don't need to kill him like right away. You know, I'll play it cool, not bump him. And then when he starts to get a little bit more active and drops his guard, that's, that's, that'll be my chance. And, you know, we just missed each other. We we're like ships passing in the night pretty much on every, every sit. And the reality was my best opportunity to kill that deer was early season, whenever I knew exactly where he was feeding. And I've kind of now figured out where he's bedding because I actually had moved cameras back toward that area and actually just for this year, actually, and just pulled him this past week and have a couple really good bucks in that general area. And they're all in there like, as they're going back, as they're going back to bed it's this little drainage, and it funnels into this really kind of. I think it used to be clear cut years ago. It's on, and there's like a, a piece of private that borders this piece of public, mm-hmm. and the that private had been cut years ago. And it's all grown up now, and now. So I believe that they're betting in there, and at least direction where they're coming from. That's the route of travel, and the timing makes sense. And that private line's probably only like maybe a hundred yards from like where I have my where I have my camera. And so I feel pretty confident that they're betting in that, in that general area. Um, and I feel pretty confident in hindsight that that's where that deer was spending time.
0: Yeah. And you talked about, uh, you know, the whole cat and mouse deer. Is this a deer that you think is still alive that you're going to be hunting this fall?
1: No, no, man. It's, the bummer is, is like, so I would have been hunting him again last year if he were still alive, but I never saw him again. Okay. I looked all, I searched for his sheds, never found a shed. Um, the bummer was too, I mean, he was the kind of deer that if someone killed him, you would have heard about it, you know? And so I don't know if he got hit by a car or, you know, who knows, maybe he got poached or whatever, you know, but I've never seen hide nor tail of him again after that.
0: I, I do wonder sometimes, cause I've thought that too, with a lot of deer I've followed over the years, like you, ah, oh, you would have heard about that deer getting shot. But I mean, mm-hmm. I do think there are a lot of private landowners too, that would shoot a deer and Probably not want to tell a soul on it, just because if it is of mm-hmm. a caliber that way, they might keep it hush hush. But I would think the same thing. The one thing I was going to ask you, and you were talking about cat and mouse. Um, I noticed at this this place I was telling you about, you know, briefly a little bit ago, um, there, were, there were certain days that you know, I had explosions of pictures and it's unique that the the timing of my pictures range anywhere from first light through the middle of the day. And this is not just, um, in the summertime, uh, this was all year last year, you know, all through the season, I got a lot of 11 o'clock, one o'clock, two o'clock pictures. And, uh, I, w- I was, I was trying to put the, put two and two together. You know, I, w- I was thinking, well, I've I've got a really good thermal advantage because it's a north facing slope and uh, I you know even though it's just a steep side hill I can probably have the thermal advantage too but when they're in the middle of the day are they are they going to get a better thermal advantage when they're walking through there is that why they're doing that but the, the the thing I thought was interesting I started going back I was using Weather Underground and I started going back and looking at what the wind direction was doing the day that they went through on those pictures. And what was really unique is every single day they did it, uh, it was a forecasted opposite wind direction of what, you know, I would need for, you know, the wind in my face kind of deal, which is no big surprise. Mm-hmm. But it was also very, very – it was in the transition. It was uh, It was mm-hmm. not like a constant wind direction. It was moving around a lot. So my question to you was going to be, like, whether it was the cat and mouse deer or just in general, do you, do you ever notice trends like that where you see – deer using a certain bed or a certain access route or something like that, that's has a lot to do with the wind direction in it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess that, that deer specifically that I was just kind of talking about, um, you know, the, the the challenge about where he was at was that it was hard to hunt in the morning um, because there's a drainage there and it's kind of darker timber and he was always going to have the thermal advantage in that spot because this, the thermals are always always going to be dropping down toward where he was bedded or down toward where he was walking mm-hmm. walking to bed, and you couldn't come in from the bottom side. But depending on, it's still a challenge because you're still you're still above him, so you could really only effectively, ideally hunt that in the evening just based on how the thermals are going to work in there. And that's why I feel like he was in there because he was bulletproof, um, you know, from a, from an access standpoint. Um, the deer that I had last, last year definitely was using, you know, definitely used the wind to his advantage. I mean, they're always using the wind to, to, to their advantage, but what he did that was different in that what I really learned, because I'd heard of this and I kind of learned of it from, uh, john eberhart and um, years ago and talking to him and i had seen this somewhat play out just from like a topography standpoint in a piece of public that i was scouting and hunting for a while in, in ohio and but i'd never seen it actually happen with with the deer actually doing what what i understood kind of in theory and what that was was I'll explain the piece in Ohio first and then it could kind of talk about the encounter from, from last year. And so this piece that I was got in Ohio is like big woods and you know, like you would think for Southern Ohio, it's a lot of spine back. So a lot of steep like facing ridges, you know, steep ridges and stuff. And I don't remember if it was on like, I think it would have been on like the North side of this Ridge if memory serves, but there was a log yard kind of at the top and there was always this big, big ass scrape that was in this log yard. And we'd we'd run a camera on that scrape, you know, every year pretty much. And we would get a Boone and Crockett deer on it, if not two. You know what I mean? It was just like, it was always at night, usually, right? Um, But you would always have a handful of big deer hit that scrape. And so we were scouting kind of all of, you know, and a buddy of mine had a really good encounter with a giant, you know, maybe 200, maybe it was 300 yards from that scrape down alongside this ridge like on this bottom, essentially there's like two benches at the, at the, before you get to the bottom, uh, uh essentially it was like a, a thermal hub area set up. And, um, so we went back in the next year after he had this encounter with this giant to try to figure out like, well, one find a sheds and try to figure out like if there were any other puzzle pieces that we were missing. And so we scouted the whole thing and like, we didn't find anything that was of interest or that, that really told us anything more. Um, we found one bed that was kind of far away, but it was, probably not one that he was necessarily using. Um, it was a classic military crest bed. And, um, as we're making our way back to kind of go to the truck, we just kind of cut up over the side of the ridge and we were just going to kind of cut up sharp over the ridge to get to like where that, um, the rendezvous point where we were meeting some of our buddies was just in that log yard where that big scrape was. And so as we're coming up over, we're kind of side hill and all of a sudden out of nowhere, I just see this like giant bed and I'm like, Holy shit, there's a bed here. Right. And it was like, Pretty classic, like three quarters of the way up the side of the ridge, you know, where you would, you know, if you follow the hunting beast stuff, mm-hmm. it's like exactly where, you know, Dan would suggest that you would look for like a thermal tunnel, and that's where a bed should be somewhere in there. But it wasn't like a military crest or anything like that. It was just kind of an odd spot for a, like a bed to be because it wasn't in like a ton of cover, you know. And we had found rut beds before, but they were usually along like the spine backs, where those were going to be running those ridge tops. And the bucks really never ran those ridge tops. They would cross over them a lot and and point hot, but there would be beds occasionally because bucks were going to lay there and try to intercept those. So we see this bed and I'm like looking at it and I'm like, man, like he's probably facing this way. And like, he's got a lot of visual advantage, but man, he's kind of still out in the open here a little bit. Like he's kind of tucked back under this like little, like not an outcropping of like rocks or anything like that, but just like where the, where there's like a little bit of a bank like on this like little bench that he's kind of like up against. And, like, I started looking at my map. I'm, like, on my phone looking. I'm, like, shit. I'm, like, that scrape is, like, directly above us. And so I, like, looked to see how far. I was, like, shit, it's only, like, 60 yards from here. Wow. Right? And so I started thinking about it. And I was, like, man, that buck is bedded. A buck is bedding here. Who knows how often during pre-rut, rut, rut, whatever the case is, to basically scent check does from here. Anything that hits that scraper walks by. He'll He'll know it. You know? And that was something I talked to John Eberhardt about because he was like, oftentimes those more mature deer will, especially during that time of year, as opposed to running themselves ragged, like you see the two and three year olds kind of like run crazy and chase does all over the place. He's like, but those older deer, a lot of times, will find a, a really prime scrape location outside of like a doe bedding area and they will just lay down and they'll wait, like let them come to you, not chase them necessarily, right? Because I can lay here all day and scent check every doe that comes by without having to run after him. Right. And so made a lot of sense. I never really seen it in practice, but in theory it, it made sense. And so fast forward to last year, I'm in this spot, awesome primary scrape area adjacent to doe bedding, thick cover. And I saw a doe walking or I'm sorry, a buck walking in the morning and some, some brushes maybe like 40 yards away from me. And then he took off like a bat out of hell. And I was like, that's kind of weird. Uh, wasn't a, I mean, I knew which deer it was cause I had him on camera and it wasn't, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, on the list, if you will, to get shot. But I was like, that's kind of weird. He kind of took off like, you know, like, like he was spooked, but like the wind was good. Like I, he didn't win me. certainly didn't see me. I was like, it just seemed weird that he took off. Well, then I saw like the deer I wanted to kill walk in and he basically walked into that same spot and laid down and I watched him for two hours. And as I'm sitting there watching him, I'm kind of trying to figure out like, What the hell is he doing? It's like a really weird spot, like for him to just bed down. Like I've been all over this place and I've never really seen beds in here. Right. And, um, so as I started thinking about it, what I realized was, is I was like paying attention to the wind and I realized he was laying there because he was scent checking that scrape without ever ever having to come out of a cover to scent to check it. He just laid there and was able to scent check that thing for two hours without ever moving and then eventually just got up and walked away. Mm. And so, that was one of the things like because the way he came in, he came in with almost like a uh, it really would have been a crosswind, but it would have been coming from his like like from his ass to his to his head, essentially, but a crosswind, mm. you know, and so he wasn't really so much worried about the wind for where he was going. He was, you know, he he may have been working the wind on the way in potentially, but to make the entrance into where he wanted to get to, he had to give it up but he was giving it up because he wanted to be able to smell that scrape. He wanted to be able to scent check. that scrape. So, I mean, I guess that's a long winded way of answering your question. It's like, I've seen them use it, you know, in different ways. Um, you know, especially like whenever you're, you know, out in Kansas or something like that, like you'll see them tailwind sometimes cause they have such good visual advantage out there and things like that. So I think sometimes it depends on the terrain topography and just like how good are they able to, you know, uh how good is their awareness with their vision you know based on where they're where they're walking into and are they leaving a place of comfort or going into a place of comfort you know it's like i've also seen that if you're hunting like the bedding area where a deer will give up the wind because he's 60 yards away from the, a general area where he's going to bed and this place is historically safe to him you know it's like his his, his it's like walking into your house you know You know, so I've seen that and definitely leaving beds where it's like they really don't give a shit what the wind is doing when they're leaving a bed. They usually have an exit trail from wherever they're bedding to like whatever their destination is from that. And they're usually on a beeline there. And then once they get out and they're out of their kind of core comfort zone, like then I think that's when you start to see them more. So I don't want to say pay attention because I think they're always paying attention to it. But I think that's when they more actively are using the wind to keep themselves safe.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because there are definitely times where I've watched deer, whether I've hunted them or I've had them on camera and kind of paid attention to or tried to pay attention to some of the details. Um, You know, it's, it's unique that you'll see certain trends, certain things, whether it's things that people have talked about on podcasts or whatever. And then there's other times there's some deer, it's like, I can never figure out what the hell you're doing with the, yeah. the running around and the, the stuff. Sometimes it just doesn't make any sense, but there's so many variables. And to me, I think a lot of the time deer are deer, and I know deer are going to do things because they, they've, they they've evolved to use their nose and their senses to try to keep them safe. But I, I think it just gets heightened where you're hunting and the type of terrain. I I, I truly believe those are major impacts. It's so like when you compare. I know you've talked about hunting uh, hunting Kansas quite a bit. Like are, this is me from the outside looking mm-hmm. looking in because I've never hunted Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, are you almost comparing apples to oranges when you're talking about the deer herds and the way they behave between those regions of the country, or is there still a lot of similarities? It's just different terrain.
1: There's still a lot of similarities. I mean, I think, you know, you can always use like, you know, deer are going to be deer, you know, no matter where, no matter where they're at. Um, They just have a different toolbox, a different toolkit than what deer in Pennsylvania have. You know what I mean? And the deer in Pennsylvania have a different toolkit than, than those deer have, you know, I would equate it to like having two, you know, two high level jujitsu practitioners, for example. Right. It's like you can both be black belts and have completely different games, but be equally as good. Mm. Right. And so that's kind of how I think about it. You know, it's like, it's not that they're different necessarily, they just have a different game that they're going to use, you know, and out there it's like, you know, you have to be way more vigilant about your, about your visual than you do around here. I mean, you can hide, you know, I mean, unfortunately where I live, there's a lot of flat. So there's not a lot of topography necessarily to hide behind and, and use to like, access and stuff like that, but there's, you know, if you don't have that, then you're using, you know, foliage, you're using terrain to kind of like help break, you know, break up your visual and and put a sneak on to try to get in, in, in close to an area or whatever the case is, you know, but out there it's like, man, you got to be diligent about your visual because they will, they will pick you off from a lot further away than you think. Like deer don't see super, super well. Right. But they're not moose. They're not blind. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it becomes more of less about you seeing you from far away and more about you changing the, you changing the, the light that they're seeing. Right. So if you think about like, uh, if you're standing in front of a set of shades, right. And if there's someone walking behind the shade and it's walking directly toward this, the window that you're looking toward, like there's no change in perception of the light because that light stays constant because there's just an object walking toward it. I'll use that as an example. But if someone walks across it, you clearly see the flicker in the light. Right. And so it's stuff like that, that you really need to be mindful of. Like whenever you're on the ground and you're trying to get in close to deer that are in plain States or that are in more open country, because they're looking for that like slight little shimmier detection of light change, you know, signifies to them that something just moved something's happened mm. right where on the east here you might have wind blowing and trees like, you know, light changing because leaves are fl- blowing and stuff like that. And trees are going back and forth. And, you know, so there's a lot of reasons why that might change here. I mean, I still think they're perceptive to it e- even around here, but in my kind of experience, maybe not quite as much. Um, But out there, it's just a much more, much more visual game, and they're still using terrain out there, just like a deer here like wants to use edge. They want to use, you know, uh, a knob or something like that to go around, or you know, uh, a saddle to go through, or pinch points or whatever. It's the same out there; they're, they just look different, you know, and they just may not be as abrupt, you know, or just may not be as obvious, you know. The biggest change for me in going out there was really, you know, learning. How to better two, two things. One was just like spending way more time on the glass mm. and, and glassing, you know, more so than hunting. Um, and then two was realizing how to hunt drainages a little more effectively. Um, because that's your biggest topography change for the most part out there. Like when you get into good drainages, I mean, there's rolling, like undulating terrain and like a three foot drop out there in terrain, like a deer will disappear in that. Yeah. Like it'll be in front of you one minute and then boom, this, the pier and then you'll see it 500 yards later. And there was just like a three foot change or a two foot change in like the terrain that they were walking on and they disappeared. Um, But those drainages, you know, I struggle with it first until I realized they're really just upside down ridges. Like it's almost like, so for example, you have like a main drainage and you have like usually small drainages that shoot off of those. And if you're hunting a ridge system, right, usually like that main ridge, you know, maybe you get like a buck and you know, that's going to use that main Ridge mostly probably going to be does using that main Ridge, but where those bucks are usually at or on those secondary points off those, you know, primary ridges. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, you might have like a North South running Ridge. Right. And you know, maybe you've got, you know, a Ridge or two that kind of points that kind of come off it on the West side. It's like, well, those westerly points are probably going to be pretty good opportunities for deer to bet on. Right. Bucks that want to spend time on secluded you know, away, away from other deer, same thing with drainages. They're just upside down. They're just, you know what I mean? And so when you look at them, those secondary kind of like drainages that come into the main drainage are just like secondary, secondary ridges off the main ridge. And so once I kind of understood that, then I better understood how to like approach those and how to hunt those and, and things like that. And so the deer use those the same way they use ridges only they're, they're down below you as a, as opposed to above you.
0: Mm, that makes sense um i'm gonna put you on the spot completely here on this one so you talked about kansas and stuff and it's unique when i when i talk with people that are from the northeast and from pennsylvania a lot of the time you know they like hunting anything you know if if they had a season for shadows kind of deal they'd kind of go hunting for shadows but uh you know it's definitely (laughs) unique when you're hunting pennsylvania and there's there's something different about it. And I, I'm kind of curious, like from your perspective, is hunting Pennsylvania something that like is very near and dear to you? Or, or are you of, of the type where it's like, well, I enjoy hunting Pennsylvania, but ah, go West young man has a has a ring to it when it comes to whitetail hunting?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it definitely. I mean, it's it, it's certainly near and dear to me because this is where I grew up. You know what I mean? Like that's I grew up hunting Western Western PA or Central. PA, you know, South Central PA, I guess. And so it's always a little bit more comforting because I kind of know how to hunt, you know, hills, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and I have like a, a big woods piece that I've been scouting the past two years. I'm just super stoked on to hunt this year as much as I can, because I've just found a crop of deer that is, um, I just found an area that has caliber of deer that People from pretty much any state would want to shoot, Mm. put it that way, right? Um, And it's not like I found like one or two of them. It's like there's, you know, there's targets, you know. Now, flip side of it is it's really, really hard to hunt. You know, so from that perspective, like Pennsylvania is kind of near and dear because I just, you know, it's it's where I'm from. But my preference for hunting is, and I'll I'll say it this way, I'll just put it this way, is Kansas and not because the deer are like bigger or whatever. I just really like the visual element of glassing and then trying to sneak, put a sneak on a deer and try to kill it. And I like the idea of, of hunting kind of from the ground. I love the mobility aspect of it to where it's like, I can be moving and on the move. And if I mess up this piece over here and I mess up this hunt, I'm just going to get back in my truck and I'm going to glass and I'm going to try to find another deer. And when I find that deer, I'm going to try to sneak up on it. I'm going to try to kill it. Mm. Right. And so it's the movement in like the adventure in, everything is kind of different every day because you're really just looking for an opportunity a lot of times, right? And, you know, people will say, well, yeah, like who wouldn't hunt Kansas, right? It's like they got great deer and this, that, the other and, you know, versus Pennsylvania. And I would say, well, man, there's some spots in PA where you can find the where I've seen deer bigger than the deer I've seen in Kansas. You know what I mean? Like that's... Right. and And that's true. But what I would say is that if you took the deer in Pennsylvania and put them in Kansas and you took the deer from kansas and put them in pennsylvania as far as like age class and caliber i would still hunt kansas because i just like that approach to hunting i like the, the mobile and on the ground glassing and just trying to get in close uh with them you know and beat them at their own game on the ground that's just you know what i've grown to really kind of enjoy
0: when it comes to glassing so that's a tactic that i'm extremely weak on Um, I I mean I use my binoculars I feel naked if I go in the woods without (laughs) them but I mean as far as truly glassing for for looking for deer um, in any way shape and form in the hunting I do in bow hunting mostly Mm -hmm. Um, not something I really I do well or often and I'm kind of curious with you utilizing and learning how to use that tactic in Kansas is that something that you translated back to Pennsylvania and use more, or is it kind of, it when in Rome, sort of so to speak?
1: No, I mean I definitely use it more now. Um, and it, I don't know if it's just out of habit, you know, that I just grown accustomed to using my glass more often, uh, just from you know hunting, you know, whether it's Idaho elk or Montana elk or mule deer or, or you know, Kansas white or whatever, just being in places where a glass is, you know, maybe more important than it's maybe the only the second most important piece of equipment you have other than your bow. <laughs> you know what i mean like if you're in those places and you're not using glass like you're really really you're actually not hunting is is what i would say. And so i think i don't know if it's just out of habit because i've done that often enough now that just like it's become like a natural instinct to use but i certainly use it now more um in pa and i would say i probably use it there's not a lot of great spots i have the glass necessarily um I will go out and glass a little bit in the summer. Um, there's not really much ag around the, the public that I hunt. And whenever it's, if the ag is close, like a bean field, it, it still might be two miles or so from where I'm actually from like the border of a piece of public that I could hunt. You know what I mean? But I might go glass that just to kind of see what deer might be in the area that could transition onto that piece of public, you know, when the, when the fall hits. Uh, but as far as like in actual hunts, you know, I use it a lot more now um, when I'm accessing And when I'm approaching, you know, especially if I'm going in for like an evening hunt or something like that. And I have obviously some like light and some visibility. It's like, I'm walking however far and then stopping and I'll pull up my glass and I'll just glass out in front of me to make sure there's not deer that I'm going to bump off or, or whatever the case is. Um, So I use it a lot. I use it a lot for that. And I definitely scan with glass like all the time whenever I'm in, when I'm in the tree, you know, it's like, I'll be looking around and like every, I don't, I don't put like a timer to it, but probably like, I don't know, like every 15 minutes, maybe half hour or whatever at, at the max, I'll pick my glass up and just scan and pick, pick apart like the the thick areas that I can't really see real well. But if I put glass on it, I can maybe start to pick stuff out and I'll spend time just kind of gridding like I would out west, like grid in each section. And I don't spend a ton of time doing it, you know, it might only take me like, five minutes to kind of get through the glassing that I want to do, but it's like every half hour or so I'll pick the glass up and just like pick things apart and see if I can catch like a, a, you know, a leg or a chest or like an antler or, or, or whatever. And that's actually how I found that, that buck, you know, that was in there last year, whatever I had that, that encounter. When I saw that one deer leave, that other buck came in and bedded down, but I didn't see him actually walk in. Like I ended up like, I thought I saw a branch and I was like, man, was that branch there before? And I put my glass on it, you know, and I was like, "Man, that's a really good. That's man, that branch looks like a an antler. Like that's mm. a that, that one'll fool you. You know what I mean?" And then he picked his head up. He was laying in his bed and he picked his head up and said, like, "Oh, shit, that's a buck." You know what I mean? So without glass, it's like I would have never saw him there because he was forty yards away, tucked behind this down tree, and there was a bunch of brush around him. There was a hole in that brush that was maybe maybe, I don't know two foot wide, maybe foot and a half wide, just enough to where you could kind of see a little bit. And if I wouldn't been using glass to kind of like pick stuff apart around there, it's like, I probably would have just never known he was there.
0: I think it's a patience thing is one of the, like, I I'm guilty of wanting to rush everything. And that's probably just the way I am with everything in life. I mean, I think patience is a virtue that you constantly got to keep learning over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, but like with, with anything, when you talked about approaching stands, I find myself so often like I'll glass, but don't take the time to slow down and and really do the, the thorough job you need to. I get in such a mindset that I got to get to my stand. And you talked about scanning. Um, I know some some really good hunters who will, will just talk about that here in Pennsylvania. They'll sit on stand and glass and talk about glassing uh, a chop off and you know looking in, in the same area for a half hour to an hour straight until you see like a, uh, a, a, a nose shake or an ear flicker, mm-hmm. or maybe the a, a glistening of a tine and you start like breaking down what is actually in that briar bramble mess. And mm-hmm. I, I, it's a, it's a discipline. It's really hard uh, to do. And I don't know why, what, what it, what it would take for me to overcome that and, you know, kind of perfect. And I shouldn't say perfect, but use that tool better because I think it's
1: valuable. Yeah. I I think it's one of those things that like, I don't know. I can just speak from my own experience, but it's like, I really didn't understand well how to use glass until I started going out West to hunt and mm. like, and you have to, and you live and you die by it. You know what I mean? Like, and so for me, you know, coming back to PA, you know, and, and hunting and, and, and using glass, you know, it, it, I was able to kind of take what I'd learned out there, how to like break stuff apart, how to like take like how to scan a pro- appropriate appropriately to where it doesn't like fatigue your eyes and like, and you're covering enough ground and you're not going too fat too fast, but you're also not going too slow. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I feel like a lot of times people will throw glass up and it's almost like just so they can feel like they threw the glass up and look, but they didn't really look, you know what I mean? They just kind of threw it up and it's like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas opposed to like, no, just pay attention to what is in your what's in your binos, you know what I mean? And kind of just and scan like I always like to kind of break a piece apart and like get a, a marker and be like, all right, I'm going to look from here to that tree. Right. And then I'll start and I'll just go up and down like, you know, as basically as far back as I can see. Right. Up and down, up and down until I hit that tree. I'm like, all right, cool. Here's the next section. Boom. and I do that one and I just make a little plan and make, you know, almost like make a little game out of it. You know where, and partly I do it too. Whenever I'm, you know, in a tree, because it it breaks up the monotony too. You know what I mean? It's like as opposed to just sitting there, you know, staring into off into nothing. I feel like I'm actually actively doing something.
0: I, I think where I really opened my eyes with how sucky I am with the glass was in 2019 when we went elk hunting. We were we were climbing up this ridge. Um, we we we, we camped on a lake and we took the boat out across this lake and we're, we're going up the, this ridge and about, you know, a mile behind us across the lake um, back towards where camp was. And we could hear elk bugling and, you know, one of the guys in camp was actually hunting that bull. And as it's getting daylight, we're, we're glassing and, you know, our guide throws the, the glass up and within 30 seconds he goes, Oh, there's a bull. And I start looking and looking, and he's explaining to me. And I finally at one point I'm like, the hell are you talking i just cannot see what you're saying <laughs> i mean it was it was eye-opening to me how uh how weak i was in that but anywho
1: yeah i mean if it's not something you do often it is kind of hard you know i mean for lack of a better way to better way to put it like it's it took a minute to get it took a minute to get used to and start to figure out like what you're looking for you know and and stuff like that but yeah. Now it's, you know, I mean, I, I really use it a lot too, when I'm scouting even, um, especially when all, all the foliage is down and, and, and stuff like that. And, and you're in the winter or early spring before green up and you're scouting. It's like, if I think I see a rub from 50, 60 yards away, it's like, boom, I just throw the glass on it and it keeps me from having to walk 50, 60 yards out of the way that I didn't need to walk and continue to move the direction I was planning to move to get this things done. I need to get done. Mm-hmm. And so I use it, I use it a ton, you know, during the, uh, during postseason scouting for sure. Cool.
0: Well, Hey, we're, uh, we're getting close to an hour here and, uh, I kind of had a couple of just random questions I wanted to run by. So, uh, yeah. let, let's, let's out, out of nowhere. What are some of, you know, with, what are some of the goals that you have? Like, like what's, what's like one of your main archery hunting goals you would like to accomplish at this point in your life?
1: Uh, right now, man, I'm hell bent on filling that Kansas tag. That is like, if I do nothing else, it's like, I want to do that it, for no other reason than I want to move on to a different state because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this will be the third year in a row that I've hunted Kansas and I should have filled it the first year uh, and just didn't work out. And then last year I had two chances to fill it and just could not, I got, I got caught drawn one time. And then the second time I was, I spent whatever it was like 15 minutes with the deer that I really wanted to kill that I saw on the on day two. And uh we had a standoff for like fifteen minutes and I just could not just could not get an arrow in him. And I was at it was within twenty yards for fifteen minutes. And uh just just didn't happen. And so that's the big thing for me is I just wanna kill I wanna kill a deer on the ground in Kansas in the open country. Um, rattle him in, snort wheeze him in, decoy him in, like whatever whatever it is. Um but that's like the big that's like the big thing I wanna do. I think long term what I would love to do like a bucket list thing for me would be to kill one in Kansas with a stick bow on the ground. Like that's one of the things I would love to do.
0: Mm. Uh, so second random question you talk, I know you're, you're big into jujitsu. You've mm-hmm. done that for a while. I really love that. And then there's a, there's a huge discipline that goes with, with something like that. And mm. I'm curious in, in the time you've done that, have there been any lessons you've taken from jujitsu and have applied to the deer woods?
1: oh man yeah so many i'm trying to think which one um i'm trying to think which one would be would be most or that has been i guess maybe uh, most prominent for me um i mean i think the easy answer is like it teaches you to like to endure like hard things um and kind of persevere and and persist persist and and push through i think that's the obvious because jujitsu is hard um but I think just the overall kind of uh, pr- approach and kind of lifestyle to Jiu-Jitsu jiu- has probably helped me more than anything. Like, you know, whenever I was talking earlier about, you know, not getting as much work done as I would like to get done, um, you know, in the off season this year, just had a lot of obligations. I just couldn't get out as much as I wanted to. And so I didn't get a lot of scouting, didn't get as much scouting done as I would have liked to. In years past, it would have really prob- would have r- really eaten me up, you know, and uh, I would have beat myself up over it you know, to be quite honest. Um, and what it has really done is it's actually provided a really healthy distraction for me, um, to kind of place hunting back in its appropriate place in terms of priority. Mm. Um, and it honestly has allowed me to find the same amount of joy in hunting that I used to find whenever I was like 12 years old. Um, because you know, there's that, that saying that distance makes the heart grow fonder to a degree Um, jujitsu allows me to, to provide myself that distance from hunting that for me, and it isn't for everybody, but for me is healthy. Um, because then whenever I get to do it again, it's like I'm in it with the same, with the passion that I, that I hope to have. Right. Um, and so that's really what jujitsu has done for me. It's, it's, it's kind of given me the space that I needed in a healthy way, um, to have hunting be as important as it should be for me. Um, and to enjoy it as much as I possibly can, because at times, like you were talking about before the pressure, like it'll, you know, you will put someone on yourself, whether you believe you are or not, you know, or whether you, you know, think you are or not. Um, and so it's been a really healthy distraction for me to, uh, to create priority and balance, not just in my hunting, but just in my life in general.
0: Yeah. And one thing you hear a lot when you, when you consume hunting media, there's so many people that talk about how they eat, sleep and breathe whitetails and deer hunting and archery hunting. And I do nothing else throughout the year because if I do, it's a distraction. And, uh, like that all sounds really, really cool. And there, there's Mm -hmm. some people that talk like that. And I, I, I think you, you said it best. Like it's, it's probably not for everybody because like years ago I used to think that that deer hunting was the only thing that mattered. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's still probably one of the, the things that I enjoy doing more than anything in, in the whole world. But at the same time, uh, per, the perspective thing that you just brought up, that that's huge. And like keeping it, keeping it, in you know, like like the, the appreciation you get by doing something else giving you perspective and i think it, you can have that healthy balance but still have that same drive and love for deer hunting
1: mm-hmm. or yeah, anything I mean, in life yeah that, you're 100 percent right man i mean it's like if you like fishing you know tony and i peterson and i've talked about that it's like he loves fishing you know what i mean like that dude will fish up a storm and fishing is one of those things where it's like it's a nice break for him away from like the hunting stuff because also hunting for him is his job like working for meat eater you know what i mean it's like So he's consumed with it. And so like getting a little break from it, you know, through other things that you're interested in, you know, when you get to come, when you come back to it, it's like, you're kind of filled with like the energy that you need in order to like be focused and try to accomplish the things that you, that you want to accomplish. You know, so for me, jujitsu definitely gives me, I mean, there's a ton of other things just in terms of like strategy, like jujitsu is very strategic and how you lay traps for people, like for your opponents. And Um, the discipline that you need to have and like the consistency you need to have and showing up and doing the work and stuff like that. So all that stuff applies to hunting. It's like show up, do the work, but there's also this part of like jujitsu, which seems counterintuitive, but it also, I think is true in hunting to a degree is like, you know, you need some rest periods and some like off time from it as well. Like, and sometimes when you go a little lighter, you know, like, especially if you're coming back from an injury, you know, this happened to me. It's like, I was coming back from an injury and so I could get on the mats um, you know, I started rolling with either people who were just a little bit smaller than me um, or I started rolling with some of the women in class um, because I, I was stronger than them and, and I didn't want to just muscle them and throw them around so I had to just use clean technique to try to beat them to positions and stuff like that and then when I came back from the injury man I was so much better because I had focused so much on just like using technique to gain position as opposed to trying to use strength and speed and flexibility and all those things I was using just like being better at jujitsu to, to win positions. And I think that that's applicable when you start to think about hunting is that grind, like it's like the 365, 24 seven, 365. It's like, yeah, man. But like when you're in that grind, like you miss so much stuff because your, your vision is myopic, mm-hmm. right? And there's so many things outside of that small lens you're using that could be helping you. You know what I mean? And because if you just take like a hunt, for example, I always, I make no bones about it. I'm honest about it. When I go on these travel hunts and stuff, I'm good for probably like a a good four to five days straight of like grinders. Right. And then usually like around the fifth or sixth day, like I got to take a morning off because I'm going to start to get sloppy. and I'm going to start to make mistakes, Mm. you know, and that morning off lets me kind of reflect on everything that I've seen over the past four days and helps me better understand whether or not I'm making the right decisions and it just gives me a little rest and a little mental clarity to get back to it. So I can be as good as I need to be when I'm doing, when I'm doing my thing, you know, I'd rather do less and be a hundred percent than do twice as much and be 50% of what I could be. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think, and then that's just me personally. Like that's just my, it's, it's, you know, the old adage of quality over quantity. You know, would you rather have four really good sits that you knew you had a chance to kill or would you rather have eight sits that like, eh, it's a toss up whether or not you're going to see anything. Yeah. I'll take, I'll take the four really good sits. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Like, and so that's just kind of how I started looking at things, you
0: know? Yeah, qual- quality placing yourself in the right situation.
1: All right, last yeah. uh, last one. I'm going
0: to ask you, and um, I'm going to forewarn you before I ask this question. It's one of those where you might not want to answer it because mm-hmm. it's putting you on the spot. But um, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a secondary question that you can answer instead. So the question okay. is: All the years, man, that you-
1: is a, that's a super that's a super nice podcast host right there. I'm, put you on the spot, I'm, but, but I'll give you an out. I'll give you an out
0: <laughs> just because just because I don't want to I don't, wanna, I don't wanna put you on the spot too bad. Uh, All the years of podcasting you've done, 300-plus episodes, an an array of different guests, are there a handful of people that you've had and networked with over the years that have had the most impact or influence or help in your hunting game or or strategies or or things along those lines that has had the biggest impact? And if you don't want to name drop, then then I'll give you the clause and say, are there certain trends that you see have in common with a lot of the best hunting guests that you've had?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll answer both, man. How about that? Was nailing both. Perfect. I was Um, hoping you'd say that. (laughs) So the handful that have helped me the most, um, you know, a couple different guys, you know, would be, um, one is my, my good friend, Greg Litzinger. Um, he's just, I think he's just one of the smartest, you know, best bow hunters that I've ever met. And he does it in some of the hardest places, like in New Jersey, man. I mean, that's just like, that's such a tough state to hunt in. Very. Um, And he's just a wealth of knowledge. And we became really good friends, you know, years ago. And not only did, I have I learned a lot from him, like was just scouting with him and stuff like that. um, But he really helped me years ago uh, become a better archer, you know, um and gave me more confidence behind my bow, and so Greg for sure, the bow hunting fiend, is like one of the guys that if I'm if I'm if I'm thinking of something and, or I'm looking at maps and I'm trying to like figure a deer out, like he's he's one of the first guys I call to say mm-hmm. hey let's let's jump on a map here what do you see this is what I'm thinking tell me what tell me if you're thinking the same thing or if you're seeing something different.
0: Sorry about that. The audio cut out. Clinton is referring to Chad Sylvester from Exodus in this next part.
1: He and I travel a fair amount to hunt. We have a very similar mindset. And Chad is just like the dude just knows how to get on big deer. Like, and he's unrelenting. Like, and when I talk about being like focused, like, man, that guy, when he gets, he's like a dog with a bone, whenever he, when he finds, when he finds the deer he wants to kill or he, or he thinks he knows where a deer is that he wants to kill. Like he's like a dog with a bone where he just does not leave any stone unturned to Mm. figure it out. And I feel like Chad is like one of those guys. It's like, I think he's an underrated, um, big deer killer because he doesn't do it all the time because he's going after like insane caliber deer. You know what I mean? Like there was a period of time where, you know, he didn't kill. I forget how many years it was where he didn't kill a buck for multiple years. Okay. Right. But it was because there was a, 200 plus inch deer that he knew of that he had an encounter with. they was chasing, trying to kill on public land. Right. And so his dedication to try to kill that deer was, I mean, he passed plenty of deer that any that I would have shot. You would have shot. <laughs> you yeah. know. What I mean? Like he watched him walk away because it was just like, it was that deer or nothing, you know? And, um, and he's just really, really good at it. It's, you know, not just being on the ground and like reading sign and scouting and, and stuff like that. But, you know, his obviously his trail camera game, I went a trail camera company like man, his strategy of how he approached trail cameras and long term data. I mean, that's the reason why how I'm able to use mine my cameras the way I use mine. You know, a lot of people ask me about, you know, my approach, but truth of the matter is it's like I followed him around the woods for probably two seasons, like him and I hunting together and scouting together and just picking up everything I could from him, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of like his approach and like and especially how he ran trail cameras and how he used them, and especially looking at long term data. Um so I would say him, and then I think it's probably, like, you know, a toss-up between um, John Eberhart and Dan Enfalt, like, I think combined. Like, I would say the, them both kind of collectively. Um, Which is unique because they're very
0: differing in the way they hunt.
1: They are, but they aren't. Okay. They're very – they're actually, like, I think on the face a lot of people think that. And I think at first glance you think that because people immediately go to, like, the scent control bit. Sure. You know, in, the, in playing the wind. But they actually both are hunting – hot sign. They're both hunting bedding areas, right? John calls them destination areas are usually like a food source that's nearby. Dan's going to hunt a destination area that's close to bedding. It probably has like an oak tree, or like an oak flat or something, you know, and, and both hunting scrapes at certain times and stuff like that. So they actually have a lot more in common in terms of like how they, how they hunt than people would, would think. But with John, my focus on like primary scrapes, in in reading some of his books years ago was like change things for me big time um to the to the point that it's like that's predominantly what i hunt a lot of times because i have again going back to what i said earlier i don't have a ton of time off necessarily that i've taken pa and so i try to strike areas that i know are going to be hot at certain times you know and i focus those areas in around like great primary scrape areas and then the other part you know with dan was more about like paying attention, playing the wind, playing the thermals, understanding how thermals work, how deer are going to use them, where they're going to want to bed in relationship to them, where they're going to want to lay sign in relationship to that stuff. And so that was a lot of the stuff I picked up from Dan at Hunting beast, mm. you know? And so I would say those four guys are probably have had, have probably had like the biggest influence on, on, on how I hunt. Um, and as far as like traits go, You know, and I've said this before, like the the biggest trait, you know, uh, two traits that I've always kind of seen over the years of, of, of interviewing, just like some dudes that are, they're just straight killers is their attention to the unassuming detail, right? Like every, every one of them are so detail oriented that are successful, like the Andy Mays and, um, you know, Andy's just like incredible. Like, you need a deer killed in three days. Like, call that guy. You know what I mean? Like, if he could, like that deer, it's going to be a dead deer if he knows roughly where it's at. Mm. You know, and just and it doesn't need many days to do it. Um, but they constantly are asking the question why, all the time, and they seek information from anywhere. And where I kind of learned this, I kind of in, like knew this to a degree, like just in terms of like talking to some guys. But where it really hit me was I was in, in Iowa. I was at the Iowa Deer Classic. I forget what year it was, and I was chatting with Cody DeQuisto. He, we were—he and I were getting ready to do a podcast together, and he had to go do something. So while he walked away, I was at—I uh, was at their booth, because that's where we were doing the podcast. And so I t- started talking to his old man, Andre, and I'd never met him before, and it was first time I've ever met him. So we just started shooting the shit, and he asked me how my season was, and I was kind of talking to him about you know this deer I was chasing and what I you know the encounters that I had and blah 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 and just like how the hunt went down and he, I forget what the question was that he asked me but I was so surprised that he asked me a question because you know, I was like this guy has had to have seen this before right but what I realized was it was like he was not just hearing me but he was like focused and listening to me intently about what I was saying because there might be something I say that he hasn't thought of in 20 years or there might be something I say that I looked at it differently than he has ever looked at it and that might be the thing that helps him next year and that was like that was kind of shocking to me. It was someone who has, who's that good, that accomplished, thought he had something to, to, to learn from me. And, and so that was like, you know, I, that was what I started noticing with all these guys, man. It's like, they're looking for, they're not too proud to pay attention to the guy who's only been hunting for three years or something like that. And pick up, pick up a nugget that helps, helps them kill a deer somewhere.
0: Yeah. Cause you definitely can't see it all.
1: Yeah. yeah. No. And if, and if you did, you might have forgot some of it, man. You right.
0: Know? Well, Clint, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Thinks that we had some connection issues in the beginning, but I guess that's the game you play sometimes with podcasting. I still enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, Real quick, just uh, let everybody know where they can follow along with you if they're not already.
1: Yeah. Truth from the is the website. Uh, truth from a stand podcast is everywhere you would listen to and find podcasts. And there is a YouTube channel. So truth from a stand on the YouTube as well. That's it.
0: Good deal. Thanks again, Clint. And, uh, Hey, keep grinding out this fall. Best of luck.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on and uh, good luck to you too. And all your listeners.